Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. All right, all right. Well, hey, good morning, Transit Church. Thanks for tuning in with us this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, uh, we're going to be continuing our sermon series, looking at the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 8. So if you're at home, grab your Bibles, turn to uh, chapter 8. The way I'm going to start my message is we're going to read verses 1 through 14. And feel free to read along with me. The verses will be on your screen. So we're going to start Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 to the, uh, the first half here. We're going to end at 14. I'll pray for us, and then we're going to dive in to uh, God's word. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue uh, from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat uh, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous uh, horns that uh, toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will, be throw, it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful 
place. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, singing your praises. Lord, you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy of all glory and honor and adoration this morning. We come uh, grateful for the opportunity to meet via technology, to gather via technology. And so we just pray your blessing and your favor over this time, Lord Jesus, that you would have your way with your word and your people this morning, Jesus, that you would, you would increase and magnify in our hearts through your word, that, that scales would be taken off our eyes to see you for how truly uh, marvelous and magnificent you are to us and your posture towards us as a kind, loving, compassionate father who's gone to great lengths to call orphans, sons and daughters. So we thank you today and I ask that Jesus, that you would be magnified, uh, you would be exalted and I would decrease and be forgotten up here. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come in power and have your way with our minds, our hearts and our souls today through your word. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. All right, amen, amen. Well, hey, if you've been with us for the last couple of months, you know that uh, the theme for our sermon series in Daniel is faithfulness in exile. And what we've been looking at through this sermon series is we're looking at how the dilemma these Hebrew exiles face in Babylon is also, in a way, our dilemma as the 21st century church because we presently are living in a land far from home because our true citizenship is in heaven. And what we saw last week, last week there was this transition from uh, the first half of Daniel to the second half, uh, Jeff talked about Daniel 7. And what we saw from Daniel's chapter 1 to 6, that the genre to describe that would kind of be narrative. We see these, these stories of God's miraculous intervention in the life of these Hebrew exiles. Daniel being saved from the mouth of lions, a fourth man in the fire, handwriting on the wall. I mean, these texts are, are fun to preach and, and uh, fun to read and study, right? And then there's this, this transition, this shift starting in the latter half of Daniel, starting in chapter 7 to the end of the book of Daniel. And that narrative shift has a technical term that theologians call weird. Um, the latter half of Daniel is, is pretty weird and wacky, I gotta be honest, and uh, as, as we just read. But uh, the word there that uh, theologians use is apocalypse. This is uh, uh, apocalyptic literature. And what that word apocalypse simply means is unveiling. And what we see in the latter half of Daniel here is the Lord unveiling, God, God pulling back the curtain for us to, 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 to the, pulling back the curtain uh, for us from, uh, of reality for us to move from what is seen into the unseen. And Jeff last week likened this to kind of dual monitors uh, taking place at the same time with Daniel's vision, Daniel 7. And on one monitor, on one screen, we have the earthly, the seen, the natural perspective that you and I see with our earthly eyes. And then at the same time, there's a dual monitor taking place in kind of the heavenly, spiritual, unseen realm as well. And that's what we saw in Daniel 7 last week was that there are these beasts coming out of the water representing kingdoms that would come one after another. And yet over that, the Ancient of Days, God the Father himself, sat in sovereign judgment over what was happening in the natural. And at the end of the vision, he gave over an eternal kingdom to the Son and the saints to rule forever. And so where we're at today in our text in Daniel 8 is we see that the Lord gives Daniel another unveiling, another apocalyptic vision of future events. And what's unique about Daniel 8 uh, that's different from the rest of the visions he gets in the latter half of the book of Daniel is the specificity and accuracy of this vision, of how we see everything that the Lord gives Daniel in this vision comes to fulfillment in history. It's pretty wild. So we've read verses 1 through 14 where Daniel receives the vision, and uh, the latter half of Daniel, we see an angel is sent to Daniel. Gabriel is sent to Daniel to help him interpret the vision. So we're going to read the latter half of chapter 8 now. Verses we have, will be on the screen for you. 
And when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, which, by the way, is an appropriate response when you ever find yourself in a situation like this. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. He kind of, you know, from shock, I think, passed out there for a little bit, but the angel was gracious, and this is what we learned next. And the angel touched me and made me stand up. And in verse 19, he says, And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the, the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does." And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal it up, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. In verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I arose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So one of the first things that sticks out as we read this uh, on on the other side of history here is the laser-like kind of incredible accuracy of this vision. It's truly remarkable. The context here, Daniel says in the the first couple of verses of Daniel here, that he received this vision around 550 BC. It was the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar uh, of Babylon. And what he's saying there, Daniel's saying this, is this is when I received the vision of all these future events. And for the sake of time, there's a lot to cover here, church, as as you have seen. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to do justice to the text, but what I'm going to do now to show you the accuracy of how this was fulfilled in history is do kind of a bullet point description of how this was fulfilled historically. So here we go. Uh, Talking about the vision here. A ram with two horns, one longer than the other, represents the Medo-Persian Empire, where the stronger Persian Empire eventually overtakes the Midian Empire, exactly like we see play out in history. And then a goat with one horn between his eyes, a unicorn of sorts, if you will, charges from the west with great speed and suddenly conquers this ram. Listen, just as Alexander the Great of Greece conquered the mighty Persian Empire with amazing speed from 334 to 331, BC. The goat's one horn broken off suddenly at the height of his power, just as happened to Alexander the Great, who had conquered the known world church from Italy to India by age 32 before dying suddenly at age 33. Pretty remarkable. The one horn of the goat was divided up into four empires, just as Alexander the Great's empire was divided and ruled by the four Greek generals that followed him. 
And from one of the four horns comes one small horn that grows in power and it moves south and east towards the glorious land Israel. Listen, just as the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes did, who ruled from 175 to 164 BC. Scholars are unanimous that the, the well, somewhat unanimous, pretty unanimous that the one little horn in Daniel 8 represents the historical figure of Antiochus Epiphanes and that that little horn is different from the horn we see in Daniel 7. And so this one horn of power, continuing on my bullet point here, this one horn of power commits various abominations, throwing starry hosts to the ground, trampling them, sets itself up against the prince of the host, stops the daily sacrifice, defiles the sanctuary, and throws truth to the ground. Now watch this. All of this Antiochus Epiphanes did as he invaded Israel. He slaughtered thousands, murdered any circumcised infant. He, uh, excuse me, he stopped the daily sacrifices, and not only that, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the Lord, as well as human sacrifices, and he put a statue of Zeus in the sanctuary, and to top it all off, he cut out and threw down the holy scrolls of the law. And what we see is that this desecration of God's people in God's land by Antiochus Epiphanes, this desecration lasted just over six years, or to be exact, roughly 2,300 days, exactly like we see foretold in verse 14 of this text. And last and definitely not least, one of my favorite details of this, it was also said that this little horn would die, right, but not by human power. And what we see historically is that Antiochus Epiphanes died of a bowel disease, a bowel disease so odious that it drove him mad, okay? Now, church, listen, I had about three jokes lined up after that line, and my wife shot them all down. So, um, unfortunately, I can't share what I was going to share there, but I will continue with our text that he died of an odious bowel disease. I'll let that just sink in. All right, so what we see here, what we see here is truly remarkable, remarkable right? A- absolutely incredible. Every detail given is, is literally and historically fulfilled. And now you might be saying, well, hey, Nick, that's great. That's great. Uh, I'm glad we're, we're talking about this today, but what does this prophecy that was fulfilled centuries uh, before uh, the 21st century have to do with my life now in the 21st century? And I would say that it has massive implications. It has massive implications. And so what I'm going to do uh, for the remainder of our time, I'm, there's just three takeaways. I think three things that we learn in this text that have massive implications for the believer a 21st century believer today. And the first thing we see, church, that we need to rest in, that's a great comfort to us, especially in the season, is this, is what we learn in Daniel chapter 8 is that the future is not uncertain, right? We learn that the future is not uncertain. Why? Why? Because what we see in Daniel 8 is that our sovereign Lord certainly knows the future, church. He certainly knows the future. That's what we see in our text. God peels back the the curtain for Daniel here and for us by his grace to us in his word. And, uh, And he gives Daniel centuries, listen, centuries of history that hadn't happened yet. If that doesn't kind of like make your brain explode, it should. Centuries of history that hadn't happened yet, he reveals to Daniel, and listen, it plays out just like God said it would. What God is doing here is he's, he's taking, like Babe Ruth, he takes the baseball bat, points at center field. The pitch hasn't come yet. His hit hasn't come yet, but he's saying that's exactly where the ball is going to fly, and he swings, and it goes exactly where he said it was going to go. And so this is what we learn. This is what we learn. When looking on strictly the natural plane, right, what is seen, what is natural, when we we only look with those eyes, 
It looks as if everything in this world and everything in our future is uncertain and unknown. But what our text clearly teaches us is that on the supernatural plane, the sovereign, all-knowing, ancient of days has his hands on the wheel of the universe working out all things according to his sovereign decree and purpose. Can I get a hallelujah for that beautiful comfort? Ephesians 1:11 says this, in him, I love Ephesians, oh, it's so good. Highly recommend just reading, reading through that in your spare time. It's been feeding my soul just reading Ephesians 1 recently here. In, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, watch this, who works all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. What scripture clearly articulates from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is this, is God is not on the throne of the universe biting his fingernails, nervously wondering how the future is going to play out. He's in control, he knows. He's sovereign and he's omniscient, he's all wise and he's all good. And so what we see is that the future church is not uncertain. The ancient of days who's all wise, omniscient, all loving, both, both knows and holds the future. And so for me in this pandemic, and for a lot of us here, if we were to describe kind of how we're feeling with one word, it would be uncertainty, right? At least for me, my, my emotional range is, you know, all over the map, as I'm sure yours is as well. But uncertainty, right? Like everyone's health is completely uncertain, right? Uh, uh, everyone's wealth is uncertain. The entire world is uncertain. You're like, I don't know what's going to play out in the next couple months globally, right? This, there, there's like this massive blanket, this massive avalanche of uncertainty that is swept over all of us. But the comfort of Daniel 8 for us today is this, is that, listen, if I don't know what the future holds, guess what? I know the one who does, right? And he knows me. He knows me, and I know that he is all loving, all wise, and all good, and I can trust him, church. We can trust him. We can trust him. And listen, from a purely naturalistic perspective, what, what, meaning that there is no unseen, there is no supernatural, there is no ancient of days sovereign over the affairs of the universe, if from a naturalist pers- uh, perspective, if there's nobody at the helm of the ship of the universe, and we're just in a tailspin on icy roads descending into chaos, we should be terrified. We should be terrified, and that is why we see a lot of people terrified. But as believers, that's not the God we worship. That's not the God that that has revealed himself in his word from start to finish. Hey, I I work out all things. I I foretold Daniel in my grace to him. I had to give an angel to help him interpret this bad boy. But but listen, centuries of history that hadn't unfolded yet. That's the kind of God we worship and we serve. And in in his grace to us, reveals reveals his nature to us, that he knows the future. He holds the future. We're going to be all right. Secondly, what we see here is this, is that, listen, the spiritual realm, what we learn in Daniel 8, the spiritual realm is just as real as the natural. And not only that, this spiritual realm greatly influences and affects the natural, right? For some of us, this is simple Bible 101. For some of us, we're kind of squirming in our seats here because we're talking about spiritual, supernatural things. Let me repeat that. The spiritual realm is just as real as the natural, and this spiritual realm greatly influences and affects the natural. Okay, so what we see in our text in Daniel 8, if we were to look at Antiochus Epiphanes from a strictly seen, natural, strictly historical plane, we just see another bad guy in history who did some bad things to certain people centuries ago. That's all we see, right? But listen, what this text teaches us 
is that in the unseen realm, the supernatural realm, there's demonic evil influence uh, that's influencing Antiochus Epiphanes here as he, as he wars against God himself, God's heavenly host, and God's people, exactly like the devil himself has commissioned him and his demons to do, right? This is what Ian Duguid, a really good scholar, particularly on Daniel, has to say about this text and about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He says, in his aggression, this little horn took on the heavenly realm as well as the earthly the two, the two monitors there, the two planes, the two perspectives, the heavenly realm as well as the earthly. In visionary language, the horn fought against the stars, God's heavenly host, as well as the people of God's land. And listen, he experienced triumphs on both fronts. On the heavenly battlefront, he cast down some of the stars to the earth. Those stars represent the soldiers of God's heavenly host. And he reached up to make himself as great as the prince of the heavenly host, God himself. What is being described here by Ian Duguid, what is being described here in Daniel 8 in no uncertain terms, listen, church, is the reality of supernatural warfare and the reality of that supernatural warfare affecting what we see in the natural. Um, I won't spend too much time on this because in a couple weeks we're going to be in Daniel 10 and we're going to talk more about supernatural uh, warfare. But listen, church, I got I just Sunday School 101, this is, this is the standard biblical worldview, church. That behind all the, the earth, this is what we've seen all throughout Daniel, behind all the earthly kingdoms that, that come and go, right, there, there's two kingdoms at war. There's two, there's two kingdoms that truly matter from our point of view, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And what we learn in scripture is that we're all citizens of, of either one, 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 or, one or two of those, right? We're either citizens of the kingdom of God by the grace of God through Jesus Christ rescuing us from the clutches of the enemy or we haven't put our trust in Jesus and, and the enemy is going to drag us to hell for me with eternal separation from God being our destiny. That doesn't have to be your case today. If you're here logging in for the first time, God in his grace to you has made a way. Jesus Christ, uh, his death and resurrection was a rescue mission ransoming people from the clutches of the, of the enemy and adopting them into the glorious kingdom of God. That's good news for us today. That is the gospel, that there's two kingdoms behind the kingdoms we see and that we're all citizens of either one. And then in 1 John 3, 8, the work that Jesus Christ came to do, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the work of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And so the problem I think we, we see kind of shifting gears here, the problem that I see, listen, and I wrestle with too, in the 21st century for the church in the West who has had this naturalistic worldview baked into them from day one, and, and, and we've had skepticism baked into us from day one. A lot of us Christians in the church are living like practical atheists and living on one plane, the natural, the earthly, right? And the way we see this play out is our, uh, our walk with Jesus is not necessarily a relationship as much as it is a religion. Because what we've relegated Christianity to, watch this, is simply orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right knowing, orthopraxy, right doing. Now listen, I went to seminary. I love doctrine. I love studying uh, doctrine. It's, it's vitally important. If we get doctrine wrong, we go into very scary territory. I love that. I have nothing against orthodoxy. I have nothing against right practice, right living, orthopraxy. But here's the deal. When we relegate, when we relegate the Christian faith just to orthodoxy, right knowing, and orthopraxy, right doing, what we've relegated the Christian faith to is a religion because someone is remarkably absent from that, and that's God himself, right? You don't need God to just live out knowing about God and doing things for God. You actually don't need God. You just need an idea about God. You don't actually have to know God. 
right? And that's the danger. That's the danger I think we can walk in when we relegate it just to studying and doing and not having a relationship. When Jesus says in John 10, I come that you may have life, uh, life abundantly in me. And John 15, that you would abide in me. Relational terms with Jesus. He went to great lengths to invite us to the table, to fellowship with him, right? And again, I go on the record again. Orthodoxy is great. If you've been at the transit for a while, you know we love doctrine. In a, in a, in a couple months or so, we're going we're gonna to go through the Apostles' Creed, and I'm super excited about that. But, it's, but, but when, we, when we, we're in a marriage, and, and listen, in my marriage, if I just needed to know certain things about my wife and then just go do those things, I don't actually need a wife. I just need an idea of a wife. If that's all that is, right? That's just self-help. That's just a religion, and Christianity is, is far more than that. And I see this play out the most in prayer, right? For me, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm kind of a nerd, a bookworm, and I love reading God's word, right? And for me, I'll be the first to admit, I struggle with prayer. And a lot of us I see in the church today, we struggle with prayer, but we don't necessarily struggle with reading our Bibles as much. And, uh, and, and here's, here's, here's why. I think that is, is because when we say I struggle with prayer, we don't actually struggle with prayer. We actually struggle with belief. We actually struggle with belief. We actually struggle that as we, uh, uh, you know, pray in our prayer closets or in our room to the unseen God, we have struggled believing that that unseen God listens and that he answers and he'll show up in the visible world. Right? And so the reason we don't pray is because we don't believe that, any, that prayer changes anything. We don't believe that God is there, that he's listening, that he'll actually answer and intervene. But the, 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 the antidote to that is actually praying and then seeing God show up in remarkable ways, answering specific prayers miraculously. You're like, oh my gosh, God is real. God is there. God, God, God's gone to great lengths so I can enter his presence, the, the throne of grace with confidence, not in my own strength, but by the blood of Jesus. So if you encounter a prayer warrior, they're not necessarily a prayer warrior. They're just someone who believes in God, that God is there. God listens and that God answers prayer. So I'll move on with this. My challenge would be this. My challenge to 21st century Western Christians who have had skepticism baked into them, and we often, we often decide to read our Bibles like Thomas Jefferson, who just, you know, didn't just gloss over the supernatural, cut it all out in his Bible. Scripture, listen, Scripture calls us not to just give intellectual assent to the supernatural reality while completely denying it in practice. We can't just say, oh, yeah, that's great. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I tip my hat to the other plane, but I'm going to live no different than a practical atheist and just live with naturalistic solutions and problems and so on and so forth. Because here's why. Here's why. We are given crystal clear commands by God himself in his word to fight against an unseen enemy that is seeking to devour us. And not only that, we're given crystal clear commands to love and pursue relationally with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength the unseen God. There's another plane. There's a supernatural plane. This book is a supernatural book. It's, it's, and, and listen, and listen, and then I'll, I'll move on with this. This is not theoretical. This is where I think we go wrong in the church. This, and, I'll, and I will conclude after this. I'll, I'll wrap up to my third point. The supernatural realm is not theoretical. We don't just tip our hats intellectually. It is real. The biblical worldview defines the world as it really is. This is truth. This is how the world works. Church, these two monitors going on at the same time. We'll get into that more in Daniel 10, but I just encourage us to, um, to really reflect on where we're at and where there's skepticism in our hearts when we're reading God's word in regards to that. And I'll move on because I don't want to spend uh, too much time on that because we're going to talk about that in Daniel 10. And the third thing we see, in, and this will be my last point, is going back to our series theme as, as exiles, right? Living in a foreign land. We're on this pilgrim journey, right? From our earthly foreign soil to our heavenly home, a pilgrim journey of sorts. Listen, as exiles, what we see in Daniel 8 is we are never once promised a peaceful, perfect, pain-free journey 
but a peaceful, perfect, pain-free destination, right? We're never once promised a pain-free journey on this side of the grave, but a, but a pain-free, perfect destination. Jesus flat out says, the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 7, 14, says, for the gate is narrow, and watch this, he says, the way is hard, church. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And in Daniel 8, what's wild here in Daniel 8, Daniel has this amazing encounter with God, receives this apocalyptic prophetic vision, uh, and oh, by the way, here's an angel to just come and talk to you and have a Bible study with and help you in, interpret that. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and sorry, for me, for me, as I, I read this, I'm like, man, that's bucket list right there, right? That's amazing. That's like, that's incredible. If I received that, I would be super excited. But what we see, what, what's kind of shocking in this text is Daniel's response to this vision, Right? Daniel's response to this vision, look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. This is his response. He got sick. And then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. So what we see here is that, man, Daniel was, was appalled and confused to the point of physical illness, to the point that Daniel actually had to take sick leave, call up King Belshazzar and say, hey, man, sorry, I got another crazy vision. I'm going to be on the couch for a couple days. I'll see you then, you know, and until then I got to take some sick leave. But I, I think it's a helpful question to ask, well, why is this Daniel's response? And we're not exactly sure why, but I think we can infer uh, from the text that um, one of the reasons why is what Daniel learned in this text was this, was that God showed him the immense suffering the people of God were going to endure under Antiochus Epiphanes, Right? Like, Daniel got a vision of that. Daniel saw that, and he knew that that was centuries down the road for the people of God, and this confused him. This appalled him to the point he literally got physically sick. And I think as he's on his bed, physically sick and appalled and confused, he's probably wrestling with God, and he's probably asking God, oh, why? Why, Lord? Why does this have to be the route that history is going to, play, to take? Why does this have to be the route that's going to, to, to play out for the people of God? There has to be another way. I don't like this way. And uh, I have two kids, and uh, my oldest is four, and she has started now to backseat drive. And so when we go on road trips, one of the first questions I get asked, what do you think it is? For all of you watching, yes, it's how long? How long until we get there? We'll be five minutes out the gate, and we have like three hours to go, and I get asked, how long? And I think one of the, 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 grie the, the grief and the, the angst that Daniel is wrestling with here is as someone who's been in exile for decades, the majority of his life, seeing the people of God suffer, living in a pagan land, and he's probably, he's probably hoping that the full redemptive story of God uh, reconciling all things to himself through the Messiah would happen tomorrow, right? Or would happen in a, in a couple decades. But what the Lord says is, this is how long, Daniel. It's actually centuries in the future. And in those centuries, there's more suffering. There's more, there's more trials for the people of God. And, 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 and going back to my illustration, the question that I get asked in my car from car seats in the back as I'm driving, is not just how long, but it's also, it's also this question. Why are we going this way, Pops? Why are we going this way? And listen, like literally, literally, I don't like this way, flat out. Like as my four-year-old has gotten to know uh, the roads and stuff, she's like, I don't like this way. Why are we going this way? And I'm driving, and I'm like, hey, I know, I don't say this, but in my head I'm thinking this, and I 
you know, respond differently. But I think, hey, I know you just started driving power wheels a couple weeks ago, but why don't you, why don't you uh, sit there in your car seat, eat some goldfish, sing Baby Shark, and trust that your, your wise, loving father it knows where he's going, right? And my daughter, when she's asking that, she's saying, hey, pops, if I was in the driver's seat, here's what I would do. I would have gone eastbound Franconia, north on Van Dorn, right eastbound 495, northbound Route 1. We would have been at Jenny's Ice Cream way faster than the route you took. That's what I would have done if I was on the, 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 the helm of, of, of the wheel here, right? And often when we question God and the route he, he's taking uh, history on, it's as audacious as, as a four-year-old talking to her dad saying, this is the route you should take, when in fact we need to just trust in the goodness and the wisdom of our God that he has his hands on the wheel, even when it looks like uh, the route he's taking is not the route we want to go, right? And I think that's what Daniel is wrestling with here. Those two questions, how long, O oh Lord, and why do we have to go this way? Why do we have to go this way? And the Lord answers, I think, those questions to Daniel. Maybe, we're not sure, but maybe as he's wrestling with God, and that answer causes him confusion and agony and angst. Here's the route history is taking, Daniel, and here's how long it will take. And along the way, my people are actually going to have to drive through some tremendous suffering along the way. And a, a verse that I love, particularly when we approach apocalyptic literature that's good for us, is Daniel 29, 29. Daniel 29, 29 says, or Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, that we may do all the words of the law. I love that verse. And what we see here is that Daniel was, uh, was confused and maybe he wrestled with God. But listen, there came a day, we see in verse 29, there came a day when he stopped the wrestling match and he came to peace with his lack of understanding of the secret things of God. He rose from his bed and he did what God has commanded him to do to go about the king's business. The secret things belong to God. I don't need to figure those out. What I need to do is I need to go about the king's business, right? Even in the midst of the confusion. And I'm wrapping up. I'll conclude with this. As I was reading and studying Daniel 9, I couldn't help but make the correlation of Daniel here in agony and confusion uh, uh, to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before he marches towards the cross. What do we see there in the garden of Gethsemane? We see Jesus crying out to his father in brutal agony, confused, and asking God, Lord, there has to be another way for history to unfold. There has to be another way for humanity to be redeemed. If there is, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26, 38 through, 90, through 39. This is Jesus in the garden with his disciples. And then he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so what we see here is that like Daniel, Jesus here, he knows the future and he knows that this future holds tremendous suffering for him. That he knew that on the cross that his hands and his feet were going to be nailed to, that the horrific avalanche of God's just wrath against humanity's sin and wickedness was to be poured out on him. That's why he says, let this cup, be, this cup pass for me. That's the cup of God's just wrath against our sins. And he's saying, God, there has to be another way. There has to be another way. And as he's wrestling with God in prayer in the garden, face on the ground, a ground which is now probably soaked with his tears and maybe snot and blood that's, that's, that's dripping off of his forehead, 
We learn he was sweating blood in Luke's account. He realizes this Jesus, this Savior, our Redeemer, realizes that there is no other route that history can take. There is no other way for humanity to be reconciled to God. And so probably with his hair a mess, his face covered in dirt and tears, Jesus does the unthinkable for us, and he arises from the dirt. The wrestling match stops, and he goes about his father's business in the midst of the confusion. This Jesus obeys. Thanks be to God that he obeyed. He submitted to his father. Because listen, because of that, and because of that, for those of us who are united to Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection through faith, our great, watch this, our greatest suffering, church, our greatest suffering, even though we might have some future suffering, listen, our greatest suffering is now behind us because our sins have been nailed to the cross and absorbed by the spotless Lamb of God and where he absorbed the forsakenness of the Father that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness and the freedom and the eternal fellowship that God the Father offers freely to us in his son Jesus. Oh, it's beautiful. And so what that means for us today, what we learn in Daniel 8, what that means for us is this, is that, is that, is that on this painful, confusing, sometimes uh, uh, painful pilgrim journey that we're on, that we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul describing his life, describing his ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, where he says this, church, he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, and struck down, but not destroyed. Why is this attitude possible for the Apostle Paul and possible for us? Here's why. Because the spotless lamb of God was crushed. He was driven to despair. He was forsaken. Listen, so that none of those things define our future anymore. You know why? Because, listen, church, this is the reality that we stand in because of Jesus rising from the dirt and going about his father's business. This is the reality we live in. We're not forsaken, church. We've been adopted, sons and daughters of God the Father. We're not forsaken. He was forsaken so that we could be adopted. We're not driven to despair because we have the unshakable hope of the resurrected Jesus flowing through our veins. Listen, we might be struck down, church, but we're not crushed because Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was crushed for our iniquity so that we wouldn't have to be. That's beautiful news for us today that yes, there will be confusion and yes, there will be pain on this pilgrim journey, but listen, we'll keep marching forward because Jesus has gone before us, Jesus goes with us, and Jesus is waiting for us on the other side, cheering us on in our heavenly home. That's great news for us. This chapter in Daniel 8 has massive implications for us, massive implications. I'll conclude with Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews 13 here, 12 through 14. I hope this encourages you. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Our redemption came through Christ's suffering. Therefore, watch this church, therefore today, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, he endured right? And then watch verse 14. For here, we don't plant our roots too deeply. For here, we don't push our chips all in on the table in the natural. 
You tracking with me? For here, we don't always fix our, our, our eyes and our gaze on the natural. Watch verse 14. For here, we have no lasting city. There's another plane. There's another kingdom. There's another city that's calling us. That's as sure as, as I'm standing here in front of you today. That, that is in our future. That is awaiting us. For here, we have no lasting fit city, but we seek the church, the bride of Christ. We seek the city that is to come. The unseen kingdom that is waiting for us, that was purchased for us by the blood of the Lamb. In him we have obtained an inheritance, a beautiful inheritance of an everlasting city. Thanks be to God, right, that this world is not our home, but we're citizens of a far greater city. And so church, let's fix our eyes on Jesus today, giving him praise and honor and glory for all that he's done for us. And so that when we are in confusion and pain and angst about what is taking place in our world, we know that this isn't all there is. This isn't the final story. There's a city waiting for us that Jesus, that Jesus in his grace has, uh, has called us to, right? So let's go to him in prayer and thanksgiving today. And I'll... Uh, I'll give you guys a moment to do that, a minute or so, and then I'll wrap up with prayer and invite the band to come on up here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. thankful for your word that teaches us about your son who helps us see past the scene to the unseen reality of all the heavenly blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for Philippians 3 verses 7 through 10 here. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered and I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, though, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, we're so grateful that in the midst of a world that is full of confusion and suffering, that you speak into that through your word and through your son, and you cause our hearts to flicker with the unshakable hope of Jesus that even though I might suffer a health loss or financial loss, severe loss that is confusing and devastating, I will not be crushed. I will not be driven to despair because I have the unshakable hope of Jesus Christ who has risen from the grave 
and declare that those things do not define my future anymore. There is a heavenly city to come. And so I will not fix my eyes here. I will not plant my roots too deeply here. I will not set my hope on this this earthly plane. And I will look to you, Jesus, on the finish line, waving your hands in the air, calling your sons and daughters to keep running, to keep marching on, to keep fighting the good fight of faith. We thank you that you're the author and you're the finisher of our faith. You've already crossed the finish line for us and you're cheering us on, but you're also, you're also the perfecter. You're also the perfecter. You're running with us. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, that through your spirit, that those who are confused in the season we're in, that they would know that you are at their right hand. Therefore, they will not be shaken, Jesus. But they know the reality that you are with them and you will be with them and you will sustain them to the end, Lord Jesus. You are so good to us. And often we find ourselves so undeserving. So we come to you saying thank you for showing grace to those who don't deserve it, myself being the foremost of sinners. And yet you call me son. You call me saint. And you've invited me to feast at your table. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all the blessings that we have in you. And so in our hearts and in our homes today, may we magnify your name and give you the praise and the glory that's due your name today, Jesus, not fixing our eyes on this city, but on the city to come. And we pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.